this is a very important event that happened. Um, and I have this on video, but and I showed I showed some of this Wednesday night. Uh, for you guys that aren't Christians and don't come on Wednesday nights, you wouldn't know what I was talking about. But I, I showed this little video. My granddaughter this week said, Hi, Papa. I am the first one that she said his name. Not my, not my wife, not my kids, not her aunts, uncles, none of that. She said, Hi, Papa. Now, later in the week, she said other names, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> and, uh, and if you want to see the video, I have it. I have it. I almost showed it again this morning, but so um, go with me to Luke chapter 19. We're going to get there in just a second. I've been I've been talking about what, what does Jesus look like, and I, and I want to really hit this. I've got a few more angles that I'm going to approach over the next uh, couple weeks, but to really look at what does Jesus look like to different people, different circumstances. I, I've mentioned this the last couple weeks, and this really gets me is how some people can can see Jesus and be all about him. Some people can see him and be indifferent. Some people can see Jesus and hate him. And, uh, and, and it's interesting that the Bible actually talks about these different people, these different groups of people. And so, um, and continue to look. Two weeks ago, we looked more at what, it, what it kind of what he looked like to people the first time visually. And that's, that's the theme that runs through all of this, but obviously there's a lot more to it than just what our eyes see. There's, there's a spiritual, there's, there's stuff going on here. And to ask the question, last week I looked at what does Jesus look like to the religious crowd? And, and to reiterate some of this, because this springboards into what I'm talking about this morning, it's, it's interesting to me that, that and, and by the way, the church gets this exactly the opposite. I'm saying in a general sense. When, when um, Jesus never, anywhere that we see in Scripture, Jesus did not get upset at people that were what we would call lost or sinners. He didn't get upset at, at people for that. He didn't get upset or angry because they were sinning. Now, we do know that God doesn't like sin and that he, and sin does make him angry. I've talked about that before. Um, even though he's a graceful, merciful God, sin does make him angry. It, that, that's called the Old Testament. But the, the idea that, that, that there is this grace and this mercy and he exhibits it so strongly, we don't see him anywhere in Scripture get upset at people because they sin. But we do see where he gets very upset at people when they're religious. That's the crowd he got upset at, was the, the church crowd that were playing church, but weren't really, um, weren't really people of love and people of God and those kind of things. They were religious. And so they, we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at kind of the other, half, the other side of that conversation that I started last week with this, is what did Jesus look like to to sinners? What did Jesus look like to lost people? What did he look like to people that had no hope, that were, that, that, that just were whatever? What did Jesus look like to them? How did they see him? When they looked at him with their eyes and they heard him in their, in their ears and in their hearts, and what did they see? What did they, what did they process along with this? And so in Luke chapter 19, the first one we're going to look at is Zacchaeus. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was chief tax collector in the re region, and he had become very rich. Now, now, you understand that how a tax collector becomes rich is by cheating people. They, they would make um, a little bit of money, but most of, their, most of the money that they made, what we would call salary or something like that, most of the money that they made didn't come from the government paying them, although a little bit did, 
but most of the money that they made came from cheating people. So if it says he's a tax collector and he's very wealthy, he got wealthy by cheating people, by lying to people, and, and coercion, basically saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm the guy. It, it's basically if the IRS shows up to your house right now and says, we're going to audit you. Um, by the way, you owe us $40,000. You, you, the onus is on you. This is, this is wrong that our government is this way, okay? Let me preface it with that. The onus is on you to prove that's not true or to try to figure out how to pay it or anything else. I think we were talking, some, some of us were talking about this a week or two ago, that if you're delinquent on your taxes, the government will charge you interest. If they make a mistake for you and call you back five years later and say, oh, by the way, we owe you $10,000, we made a mistake, they will not pay you interest. Did you know that? That's wrong. So, uh, the, the idea that he got wealthy is because he was a dishonest person, and he was a uh, bully, basically, is what happens here. So, um, he, uh, Zacchaeus, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So, he ran ahead, and he climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name, Zacchaeus. Now, I, 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 I love this little part of this scripture where, where he calls him by his name. To me, this is a very important, every little detail of this story with Zacchaeus, from what Zacchaeus does, Jesus does everything. I mean, every bit of this is packed with information about how we see ourselves, how Jesus sees us, how we see, uh, how we see Jesus, how the world sees Jesus, all of this kind of stuff going on. It's interesting that when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, he calls him by name. Now, I don't know how he knew his name. I don't know if, if uh, one of his advisors was standing beside him saying, okay, the guy on the tree, that's Zacchaeus. Uh, you ever seen those kind of people, you know? I don't know if he already knew his name. Maybe he had a reputation. Zacchaeus did. I, I don't know. Maybe the Holy Spirit supernaturally told him uh, Zacchaeus' name. But what we do know is that he knew his name, and he said his name to Zacchaeus. And Luke takes time, takes specific time to make sure that we as the readers 2,000 years later knew that Jesus specifically called him by name because he cared, because he, he was concerned about Zacchaeus. This, this wasn't just, hey, tax collector guy up in the tree. He was very, very um, uh, interested in Zacchaeus as a person, as an individual. So he says, Zacchaeus, <clears throat> quick, come down here. I must go to your, be a guest in your home today. I also like the fact that he invites himself to Zacchaeus' home. That, that's a really cool thing there. Um, do, do you remember when you were a kid? Some of you are like, no, it was too long ago. Do you remember when you were a kid and, um, and you would get in trouble for inviting yourself to people's houses? Right? My kids used to do that all the time. Um, they, they, especially three or four specific families that, that we were close to, they were close to, and they would all, they'd come to us all the time. Oh, by the way, uh, so-and-so um, said we could come over for lunch today. What do you mean they said we could come over for lunch? They didn't come ask us. Well, we asked them because, you know, they have kids. My kids want to play with their kids, so they asked. Ah, I will beat you, child. Do not do that. Jesus literally just asks himself to come to Zacchaeus' house. First, he acknowledges that he knows who Zacchaeus is, cares about him, and then he says, hey, I'm coming to eat with you today. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. Now, this is a very important sentence for the church. This is a very important sentence. Zacchaeus, a, um, 
a, a tax collector, very dishonest, cheats people. That's who he is. That's what he does. And he's become extremely wealthy on the backs of people. Not honestly, dishonestly. And he is excited to have Jesus come to his house. Now, I'm going to unpack this a lot more at the end of this, this morning. But there is this, this interesting thing that happens all through the New Testament. And for some reason, it's, it's elusive to, to the church today. Obviously, in our culture, it's elusive to us. And that's the fact that, that, that people that were lost, that what we would call sinners, they were very interested in who Jesus was. They were excited to get to know him. They crowded around him all the time. Yes, he was doing miracles. He was doing stuff. But that wasn't, just, that wasn't it totally. There was, a, there was, there was a, a something about Jesus that, that they were interested in. It wasn't because Jesus compromised and he made everything very watered down and, and nothing so that they would embrace him. That's modern church thinking. That's what the church has done today, is we think if we take all of the offensive stuff out like sin and salvation and the blood of Jesus and all this other stuff, that people will embrace Jesus more, except the world is becoming less uh, enamored with the church day by day by day, and we water it down more day by day by day, and we can't seem to see that there is a connection there. But when we look in the New Testament, they were very enamored with Jesus. They were excited to get to know him. And he did not compromise. He was constantly saying, stop doing this. This is sin. This is going to hurt you. These kind of things. He was constantly doing that. And people were still hungry for him. And here's, here's why. And I believe Zacchaeus is the example for us. Zacchaeus shows us that people really, at the end of the day, they really want truth. Now, maybe younger, maybe, you know, when you're 22 or something, you don't struggle for truth as much. Um, it's easier to whatever. But as you get older and as you really start thinking, getting married will do this to you. Having children will do this to you. These are life-changing moments when you think, wait, uh, there may be more to this thing called life. I may need something like absolutes. I may need something like purpose and, and uh, truth and those kind of things. We just had a conversation with a guy um, yesterday. At our men's breakfast, the waiter, he's been waiting on us for months now. And um, we've talked to him. Guys have prayed for him. Just a bunch of stuff. And, and he came, I think it was, he came, I think he came to Paul. Did he come to you first? And, and um, wanted information about the church, wanted to talk to him because, why? And this is exactly what he said to all of us later. He said, well, I just turned 30 and I realized that there's more to this life and I need to investigate some spiritual things. And I was like, we are busy eating breakfast. No, you know we didn't say that. I didn't say that. Some of you are like, I hope he didn't say that. <laughs> um, we gave him information. I got him a cell phone number. I think Paul gave him his number. You, you, you know, guys, people are really hungry. They really are hungry. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurting. There's a lot of lostness out there. There's a lot of, of uh, confusion. There's a lot of stuff going on, and people are hungry. And the church seems to think that our best option is to, to, to shade this thing or hide the truth or change it somehow that people don't really get it. And then we think, if we'll do that, they'll just flood into our churches. And they're not. They're not. But they did get excited when Jesus 
said, hey, I'm coming to your house. Verse 18. Well, let me go back to verse uh, 7. But the people were displeased, weren't they? You know these are church people, right? You know how I know? Because they use the word sinner. The, the, most of the time the world doesn't use that term. They were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. How dare you hang out with sinners? I was trying to put this in some category. that I mean, we're not getting the whole uh, Judaism Gentile thing. I mean, that's a deeper thing. Even though we can explain it and talk about it, it, it's so much not a part of our culture. We don't get that, okay? So the best example I could come up with is if, um, if, if I were to say today, as a Denver Bronco fan, if I were to say to a um, Raiders fan, hey, why don't we do lunch? That's how bad this was. Is that kind of thing. I mentioned in first service, we have this couple that are friends with Lynn and I that were in our last church, and, and uh, he was a Raiders fan, and she's a Broncos fan. They literally do not watch the game in the same room. And sometimes she's even been known to leave the house during the game. They're both at them. This, this is the kind of thing that Jesus is having to deal with with these people. How dare you go hang out with those sinners? That has always caught me. That somebody would actually say something like that out loud. The reason they could say it out loud is because it was, all, it was so much a part of their culture. It was so much a given and acceptable. How dare you go hang out with those sinners? But here's something that happens, okay? and uh, the, the next sentence here, the next two sentences really set us up to understand something that, again, I believe is elusive to the American church. Not only have we watered all this down and all this other kind of stuff, then we wonder why, at the end of this, that, that uh, people don't seem to, they don't do the right thing sometimes. We take all of the message of repentance out, we take all the message of transformation and all these kind of things, and, and we've built a culture in America today where we just kind of want people to come alongside, but don't, we don't really want them to have this life-changing transformation moment with Jesus Christ where he forgives us of sin. This isn't just, hey, you can be part of the team. He completely washes us clean of sin. And, and somehow we don't want to embrace that in the church. See, Zacchaeus has a, a, a true transformation, a true salvation moment. In fact, Jesus says that. But this, this is what Zacchaeus says. Uh, meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor. That's transformation. That's life change. Think about taking everything that you have right now. Everything. That, when, you, when, he, when you say wealth, that means everything that you own, you've acquired, you have. The, the place you live in, what's sitting in your garage, all these kind of things. I'm going to take half of everything that I have and I'm going to give it to the poor. That's transformation. That's life change. It's not the way we think in American church. Oh, we now if you look at it in a money way, sure we want people to do that in the church. Yeah, I'll give a bunch of money. That this is not about money. This is about life change. This is about attitude, mindset, heart change. Then Zacchaeus continues. He said, "I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, which is how he makes all his wealth." 
If I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Now, I, I was trying to just kind of, I just took arbitrary numbers and, and tried to figure this out. And this is the conclusion I came up with. He's already cut everything he has in half. Then he has, now he has half as much to work with. And he says, out of that half, I'm going to give four times as much to everybody that I've ever cheated, which is just about everybody he's ever uh, charged taxes with. So where is he going to get that kind of money? If you're making your wealth by cheating them, how do you make that four times as much to give them back after you've cut it in half? This is life change. This is deep life change, transformed thinking. Something that Zacchaeus heard, we don't know what Jesus said to him when they got to lunch, but after they'd been hanging out for a while, Zacchaeus has a salvation moment. A, a, just a transformative moment that says, I can't be who I've been before with before uh, who I have been before. And the reason I believe is because he has been with Jesus. He's seen Jesus. He has seen Jesus, not the way that a lot of the church world in today's society sees Jesus, but, but really has seen Jesus to the point where their entire existence is different. He's seen Jesus. And Jesus says, Jesus responds in verse 9. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. This is a huge statement because <clears throat> in... in um, Evangelical, even Pentecostal, charismatic church thinking in our culture, we don't like to put limitations on it like this. That's the way we look at it. How dare you say that somebody is saved because of something that they do? We, we would much rather talk about it, sing songs about it. Not what you do, not your actual actions. Jesus, he just got through saying, this is what I'm going to do, Jesus. And Jesus said, okay, then let me say this. Now you get it. Salvation's come to this house because of what he's doing. His actions, because our actions actually prove who we are. Not what we say all the time, but our actions. I, I, we, I was thinking about this. We were talking about this, uh, some of us here in the church. And so um, they, they, they alluded or, or something. I don't, I don't want to, I'm joking in my head, but I don't want to misrepresent while doing that. But that, that maybe I don't say some of this strong enough. Let me say this as, as simply and as, as strong as I can right now. One of the things that I believe is plaguing the church right now is that we don't, really un, we don't have a good understanding that if we really let Jesus take over our life, our lives will look different. We will be different. We're going to act different. We're going to talk different. We're gonna, this is one of the things. I said this to my, to my oldest son the other day. Um, we, we were talking about cussing and things like that. And, and I told him, I said, you know, it is amazing to me how many people that I meet regularly that call themselves Christians and cuss. I don't get that. And then so he was asking me differently, well, what, what is cussing? Is it cursing the name of Jesus? So I was kinda, and I said, I, I mean, he was kind of joking, but he was kind of serious because he's 24. And so... I, I was, I, I just told him, I said, I'm not going to justify anything you just said. You know what cussing is. Is it cursing or cursing? You know what it is. Stop saying stupid things. Not, he doesn't cuss. That's not what I'm saying. I was talking about people call themselves Christian, have a foul mouth. Say, stop it. 
First, you're misrepresenting Jesus. Jesus doesn't talk like that. He doesn't. No matter what you say, he does not talk that way. Stop it. And, and, and the other side is stop being just ignorant. If that's the best you can come up with, you're just ignorant. I don't know. That's how we say it in Texas. I don't even actually know how to say that word. But that's, that's the truth. Because you don't have a better word to say, use a cuss word. It's ignorance that does that. Just stop it. Things like reading your Bible and praying. If you're a Christian, you're going to do those things. Come to church. You're going to do those things if you're a Christian. Why? Because that's what Christians do to get to know more, connect more, understand Jesus more. That's what you do. The, the, the idea that we look at Zacchaeus and we're like, wow, that's way over the top, giving half and all this kind of... No, it's because the Lord changed his heart. The Lord changed him, changed his thinking, and he knew he had to do this. When the Lord changes us, we will be different. We're not going to desire the same things. We're not going to want to go down those roads. We're not going to talk that way, think that way, act like that way, treat people that way. We're going to change. We're going to all of a sudden start having a desire to know God's Word. If you don't have a desire to know God's Word, do you? are you a Christian? I don't know how to say that any different. Are you a Christian if the, the, the manual for this thing you don't even care about? And it's not just the manual. John says that the Word is Jesus. Right? Okay. I'm getting back off my high horse. He said, Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus himself is saying, you know why I'm talking to Zacchaeus? Because... He's lost. Why do I care about the little dude in the tree? Because he's lost. Not because he's a sinner, not because he's cheated people or to make restitution. Those, those weren't Jesus' priorities. He was concerned about his soul. Zacchaeus' his soul. And here's the cool thing is the people all standing around, not the, not the church people, we see where they complain about him, but everybody else, they're paying attention. They're watching. What did they see when they saw this thing unfold? Some of those people had been cheated by Zacchaeus. What did they see? How did they see this? I, th I think this is amazing that they actually get to see Jesus. They had, they, it's not just a funny little song to them. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. But, but it's, they're standing there watching it. What did they see? What did Zacchaeus see? When Jesus looks up in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to lunch with you. What did Zacchaeus see? Whatever he saw was enough to change his whole existence. The second, oh, I want to show you a picture of this. <clears throat> this is the holy Jesus saying, Staying alive, staying alive, up to Zacchaeus. <laughs> right? Um, you, you know, interesting thing about art is art takes a, a, a time frame and defines it in the visuality of how people look. And then, actually, we don't realize this sometimes, two, three, five hundred years later, we actually let those, those moments in time define how we look at certain things. This is why I've kind of been picking on some of this through the series. The, the, the way we've looked at Jesus over time 
is greatly because of artists. It's not because of a photo. It's not because of what really Jesus looked like. It's because some artist's rendition. And most of our art that we're getting in Western culture was European. So Jesus looks European. That's that's the the concept here. But I, I just love this. I love the fact that Zacchaeus is up there and I think they captured this pretty good. I'll accept the Jesus thing. I think they captured this um, pretty good. So let's go, let's go to the next person. I want to show these pictures be first before I um, jump into this. The next one we're going to look at is a woman caught in adultery. But the picture of her, I really like this picture for a few reasons. There's a bunch of reasons that stood out to me. You guys know over the, so these last few weeks, I've been showing a lot of pictures. I'm going through a lot of pictures, um, just hundreds of pictures looking at all the different things. Some of them are benign, but but I love this one for a bunch of reasons. One of the reasons I really like this is because you don't see anybody's face except Jesus and this woman. And you really don't even see her face. See, she has got her head bowed. She can't even look at Jesus. You know, that's another thing that, that seems to be, man, we've got to push this kind of into the forefront in, in, in our in our cultural Christian thinking, is this brokenness and this repentance and this, I can't even look at Jesus. Now, all the other people, they're standing around accusing. We only see their hands, obviously, but they're all standing around accusing. None of them had a problem looking Jesus in the face and yelling at him or stuff. I've often thought about this, and this, this is the thing I've talked about that's not in the movie, The Passion of Christ. The, the, people talk about how brutal that movie was visually, but there was some of the more brutal things weren't in the movie, but they were true, like them pulling Jesus' beard out. What kind of person can walk up to somebody, grab his beard, and pull chunks of it out? That I can't imagine. I mean, I can get angry at somebody. I, I can but, but grab their facial hair and pull it out in chunks? That... That's a different mindset, specifically when they have done nothing to you except show you love and grace. And, and you can hurt somebody that bad. It's this, this, um, this um, what I, I think it alludes back into what I was talking about last week about this, this arrogance that comes along with humanity and the spiritual arrogance that, that we, th- we think that we are so important sometimes. We think we are so all that with every, with every aspect of life. And Jesus, the real all that, the king of everything, all he does is show grace and mercy and humility. The, the next picture, another person, this woman at the well. What it, what it must have felt like, again, you know, the sun is glowing only on Jesus. It's amazing. But what it must have felt like for her when she began to talk to Jesus and her whole life was transformed. Entire life was transformed. What did Jesus look like to her? I, I've wondered this before because a, a few different things. Um, scripture says that Jesus was tempted in all things. And I think this is one of the places where Satan might have tried to tempt Jesus um, relationally or sexually. Because this would have been the kind of woman that would have done this. She, she had already been married five times, was living with a guy. When Jesus walked up, did she see him first as whether he was good looking or not? Is that how she appraised him first? But as he's talking and as she's beginning to see Jesus really, it changes. 
and, and her whole life is transformed. She goes running into the city and telling everybody, hey, he told me everything about you. And everybody's like, we already know everything about you. But th- 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 he knew. He knew stuff. And it changed her. The third one that <clears throat> we have here is a man that was lowered down from the roof that was sick. And I love the fact that he's looking right at Jesus and Jesus is looking at him. This is why I picked this picture. It works with my series. Uh, they're, lo- they're looking right at each other. I wonder what this guy thought about Jesus. He finally gets lowered down through the roof, and he finally is looking at Jesus. And everybody else has stopped talking, and they're quiet, and they're paying attention to this moment. What's Jesus going to do? Jesus is this healer guy. Is he going to heal this guy? Of course, then he says, your sins are forgiven. But, but that moment that, that this guy is looking at Jesus, the expectation, I don't know, probably, but we don't know. What did, it look, what did Jesus look like to him? Literally seconds later, he's going to be up walking completely healed. What did Jesus look like to him at this moment? See, I believe Jesus looked, when Jesus looked at people, again, this is, I'm doing the same thing I make fun of some of these paintings about, but I, I think you could, I think you could sense his love for you when he looked at you. I think you could sense the, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit on his life. I think you could sense this. You could sense a different kind of compassion and a deeperness. We even see little things in Scripture where it says this, like when he read the scroll in the temple and they said, what, what authority does he have? He had more authority than everybody else. That's not something that you, um, <clears throat> that you tell people you have. I have more authority. If somebody says that to you, it's because they have no authority. Right? I used to say this about my boys all the time when they were growing up. They were always telling me, I'm a man, I'm a man. I kept telling them, um, if you have to tell people you're a man, you're not. When you finally become a man, you don't have to tell them. They know. I have authority. But Jesus had authority that people sensed. But not, I don't think the same way probably that today. Not in an arrogant kind of way. Not in a leadership kind of way. But in a I've got your back kind of way. That I will, I will be there for you. That's, that's a different kind of authority than we think about in our Western culture. And I'm going to support you. I'm going to carry you as much as I can. All these different things. What did they see? What did this guy see? So let's go back to the woman caught in adultery. <clears throat> John chapter 8. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. The religious people again, the religious people bring this woman to condemn her, throw her down in front of Jesus. To, to, to condemn her, that's, that's, their, that's, that's who these people are. And, and here's another thing that's always got me in this story. They bring this woman, throw her down in front of Jesus. They didn't care about her. They didn't care about judgment. They didn't care about whatever. They, they would love to have seen her been stoned to death because they're just bad people. But that wasn't even their priority. The priority is they just hated Jesus and they were trying to do something to Jesus. So they bring this woman caught in adultery. My question is always this. Where's the dude? According to Mosaic law, he was supposed to be brought with her to be judged with her. So where was he? 
That's always got me in this. I don't know. I'm going to step way out on a limb here, but I, I've often wondered about this. What if, what if that the person that she had been... See, I think this whole thing was a setup. I think they were using her to try to, to, to set up Jesus. I don't think... I, thought, I think they saw a moment. I think they might have even set the moment up, but I think they just saw a moment. Hey, this woman's been committing adultery. Let's, let's see what Jesus says about this. I think there is a chance that one of these religiously arrogant people here were, it was the guy in the relationship. What if? You're like, that's a stretch. I know. But it works for this morning, doesn't it? So, so what if? Because nobody's going to judge him because this wasn't about justice. This was about religiosity rising up to condemn. I've seen that many times over the years. Lynn and I have talked about this for three decades now, is how simply people can attack and attack and attack. But down deep, they don't even really believe that. Down deep, it's not that big of a deal. But, but it's the attacking that makes the issue. So, so they bring her, throw her down in front of Jesus. Um... Where was I? Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. That's their only goal. They just hated Jesus. You know, because he was full of grace and mercy and love. Jerk. So, Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now let me go back to the picture because I did want to mention this. This is the only thing I, I don't like about the painting. There's no dirt on the ground. He's writing on a rock. Did the artist not read it good enough? That's my only issue with this. Like, it's a rock. But either way. But I do, I really do like this painting. In fact, I'm probably going to get a print of it or something and put it in my office. I just love the, the, I think the artist did a great job, except for the rock. The artist did a great job. Because of Jesus, you can just almost sense Jesus' compassion here. And also his attitude. Maybe I'm just, because I know the whole story. But I feel like he's really got an attitude with all those people around him. And she can't even look him in the face. She can't even look him in the face. She knows she's wrong. She knows that potentially she realized this could be her last day on the earth. But Jesus stooped down, wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. Now, I've talked about the dirt and what he writes in the dirt and all this. That's not for today, okay? Let's skip over that. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again. And he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again, and he wrote in the dust. I, I love the fact that he does this for a couple of reasons. Who, who has never sinned? One of the reasons, I'm not going to focus on all the others, just this one. One of the reasons I believe he says it that way, if you've never sinned, throw the first stone, is because the, the concept of Judaism with sacrifices and everything meant that they had to say they were in equality with God or they were a sinner. There was no other options in Judaism. You were either a sinner that needed the sacrifices or you were God himself. And that's what they were upset at Jesus for. So they couldn't go that way. They couldn't say, well, I don't sin. Jesus caught them in their own trap. I love that about him. All right. 
When the, when the accusers heard this, he stooped down and wrote again in the dirt. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with a woman. The, the crowd's still there. I like that too. The crowd's still there. They, they weren't judging whether they were sinners or not. They all knew they were sinners. But Jesus wasn't talking to them when he said, whoever's not sinned, throw the first stone. He was talking to the religious people. The rest of the crowd was just like, Let's just see how this goes. See how sinners leave. I wonder if as they're leaving, somebody's like, oh, sinner. Right? Because they were admitting they were sinners by leaving. And then Jesus stood up and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Where'd they all go? Let me throw this out here because this is, this is important. This is a great truth that God showed me um, a long time ago, but it did a very difficult time in my life when, when there was accusing happening against me. Non-legitimate, but accusing. And I found over, over time and through this story that if you'll just stand close to Jesus, the accusers will eventually go away. They're going to lose. It may not be quick. You may have to go through some stuff, but the, event, the accusers will eventually go away. But you've got to stay close to Jesus. If you turn and you head toward the accusers, they won't go away. You'll be fighting the accusers. But you just stay close to Jesus. Stay there with Jesus. And the accusers will leave. I can give you many examples over the years. That's not easy, though. It's definitely not easy for me. But just, to, just, let, just let Jesus be in charge. And he says to her, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them stay? And she says, no. No, Lord, they did. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I'm not here to condemn you. See, Jesus tells us in John 3, he didn't come to condemn, he came to save. And for some reason, the church gets this backwards all the time. We'll condemn the lost and we'll embrace uh, religiosity. We'll embrace fake, and we know they're fake. We know they don't love Jesus. We know they don't have a lifestyle that matches up and all these other things. But, but we'll, we'll embrace that for whatever reason, because of culture or finances or whatever, we'll embrace that. But, but we'll condemn the lost. This is one of the things that God's been working on me for quite a while now. But it just came to, there was a, something that happened this week that brought it to my head. But <clears throat> the, the, you guys know I'm a politically charged person all the politics of the day, politicians and all this kind of stuff. And I just, I just get so tired of just blatant up-in-your-face lying and the whole world just goes on. You know the big funny thing on, on media right now and Facebook and Twitter and everything else? Uh, Epstein didn't kill himself. Everybody been paying attention to that? Okay, here's the goofiness of that. Is the whole United States knows he didn't kill himself. And, and the only thing that's happened in our society is it's become a joke. It's become a tagline. We know he was murdered by, by very high people in political office that might have been president before. And we know that he was murdered by this group of people that were, that were sexually abusing little girls for decades. Everybody knows this is true. Everybody knows. But because of the place of our society, it doesn't matter. That stuff drives me crazy. Well, the Lord has been convicting me. Pray for these people. Don't condemn them. Pray for them. 
Don't condemn them. It's hard for me to do that because I don't like a lot of them. Pray for them. So one of my sons this week, he, he did this to me. I think it was my oldest son started it. I don't know. He did this to me this week just to get under my skin. I played this online game with my boys and with their friends. I was about to say they're college friends, but they're all married and have kids, most of them now. But um, we play this game online. We've been playing it for years. And um, there's levels. Iron, bronze, silver, gold, all this stuff. I, I was the highest you could be at bronze, and I can't get into silver, can't get into silver. I've been trying, I've been trying. They sent me a picture of her Twitter account. Ocasio-Cortez just got into silver. Took a picture of that, sent it to me, said, hey, Dad, how's your life going? I was like, oh. So I, I spent all weekend, and I'm now in silver. <clears throat> <laughs> because I'm not going to let her. So but this is the thing. When they sent that to me, they knew they, knew, they could put anybody else's name on there, except maybe my wife. If somehow my wife got in silver, I'd have jumped off the top of the church. I don't, I don't, but they knew they could put her name on there and that would get under my skin. You know why? Because I got something wrong going on in here. That's why. That's the truth. I'm not totally against it, but there's something wrong going on right here. And I've been praying, God, please help me to pray for these people. To care about their soul. When Jesus looked at Zacchaeus, he cared about his soul. When Jesus looked at this woman caught in adultery, he cared about her soul. And, and that's what they saw. That's what they saw was his care for their soul. The last little part of this, Luke chapter 15. You guys know I've said this before. I at least say this a handful of times a year. But this Luke chapter 15 verse 1 is my, um, as a pastor, uh, trying to be obedient to what Scripture says, that my job as a pastor is to train people in the work of the ministry. This is my defining Scripture for that. Luke 15.1 is my defining Scripture in the whole Bible. This is what defines for me what I believe that my responsibility is. Now, that, that sounds a little different according to what the Scripture says, but I'll explain this. Luke 15.1 says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This is the problem that I have, is all of the sinners of Jesus' time were very interested in what he said, who he was. They wanted to be around him. Zacchaeus was excited that Jesus was going to come to his house. All these different things. So why does the world nowadays hate the church? I've heard people use the scripture where Jesus tells the disciples at the end, um, you will be hated for my name's sake and all that kind of stuff. But he, he specifically defines that, I believe, as the people that are, that are religious first. Well, I believe it's religious people from different religions. The unsaved that just don't have any direction spiritually, whatever the case is, we don't see anywhere where they get upset at Jesus. We don't see that anywhere. And Jesus never got upset at them. But he says here that all of, the, all of the sinners of society want to be around. That I believe that what that's telling us, and I have some answers, but I don't have them all. But what I believe what that's telling us is that the reason the church is such an, uh, an, anthema to, an anathema to the society today is because we are not really being a, a lot like the real Jesus of the New Testament. We don't look a lot like him. We're looking like something else. It's enough different that the world doesn't like it. 
But when they really get to see Jesus, they like it. The example I have is Saturday morning at that breakfast. That guy has been watching us for months, waiting on us, and he said to us, I need to talk to you about your church because something that we're doing is catching his spirit enough that he's seeing Jesus enough that he's interested. I believe the reason the world pushes back against the church so much is because we're not really representing Jesus. We're not. And we've got to figure out how to change that to where the world is interested because they see love. When they look into our eyes, they see compassion and love and truth. When we're talking and living that out, they see truth. That, that has to happen. He continues. If a man has a hundred sheep, one of them gets lost. What will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? You know how many times I have argued with church people with that sentence? Won't Jesus leave the 99 and go to the one? Well, but we need the church. The church needs Bible studies. We need all this. We need that. But let's just look at Scripture. Let me, let me jump down to the very last sentence since I'm already running late. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Jesus is more concerned with the one than he is with the 99. And the church doesn't see it that way. We see that it's about us in here. We close the doors and protect ourselves and build this kind of subculture called Christianity. When really Jesus is saying, I, he's trying to break out of the walls and get out of the church so he can go to the lost. And we're trying to say that it's all about in here. I'm, obviously, I'm talking thinking process. And, and he's concerned with the lost. He's concerned with the people out there. And M Michael, one of, the, one of the newer guys in the church, he said this to me this last week. I think it was at, a, a, at Grillers at my house. But he said, <clears throat> he, said he, he wants to start, he's, he's moving into his new home. He's just moving here and moving into his new home and he's about to start a life group. And he said, correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor. He said, but the more I'm thinking about this and the book we studied on Wednesday nights and all this other kind of stuff, he said, I think the best option would be for me to start a life group with the lost people in my community rather than recruit 10 people from our church. I, I want to kiss a man around the lips. Be, because why? That's what Jesus would do. Do you really think Jesus would come to church at Briargate so that, I think he would, by the way, but do you think Jesus would come to church at Briargate so that he could have a life group with a bunch of other Christians? Or would he be looking for that sheep? That one. That one sheep. And I told him, Michael, you're doing it, man. This is the right idea. He says, I've never done anything like this. I need your help. And I said, we got you. We can help you with this. But he said, I'm not going to start a life group with people in the church. I'm going to start it for people that need the church. I'm like, mm, mm, that's what this is. Stand with me. So how you see Jesus is how you will present Jesus. You know that, right? If you think Jesus is more concerned about Christians, that's how you'll present him to lost people. If you, if you present it all. If you believe that he's about the woman caught in adultery or the woman at the well, you, you'll present him that way. 
That's, that's what we got to do. Is they got to see Jesus that way. I want to see him that way, and I want others to see him through me that way. That's how simple it is. Lord, we come to you. We need you to change our mindset, our worldview, our thinking. Jesus, you are a lot more concerned about the one than the 99. Lord, we know that. We know that, Jesus. So, Lord, stir our hearts to see you that way. We want to see your love, your true love. We want to see your power, your authority. We want to see your mercy. God, I've seen that so many times. When you have you have not given me what I deserve. God, I'm amazed by that. So, Lord, help us to see. Help us to see you right now. And then, Jesus, I pray that, that every one of us this week, specifically this week, that we'll have a chance, an opportunity to, to share you with somebody else and that they'll see you in us. Lord, I pray that. Do whatever you got to do in me. Do whatever you got to do in every one of us here. Lord, we repent. We repent of the junk, of the of religiousness, of sin, or whatever it would be hindering us so that when somebody sees us this week, they see you. Lord, wash us clean so they see you, so they see your love, they see your grace, that they see you, Jesus. Lord, help us to see you. Lord, anybody in this room that's struggling with condemnation, Lord, I ask them to help them see you. You're not condemning. You're not. They need to see you. Lord, somebody that thinks they can't be forgiven, Lord, I ask you to help them see you right now. Not what they've been told, not their past, not their church, not a, let them see you, Jesus. Lord, help us to see you. I want to want to leave this with you. It's your homework. I'm going to be praying for you this week, specifically for this. This is the direction I'm praying that God would give you an opportunity to see somebody that needs Him. You're going to see them everywhere, but specifically see somebody, focus in, spiritually focus in on them, and and move your heart with compassion for them. Even if you don't say anything, I hope you say something to them. But even if you don't say anything, I just pray. God will, will, will move your spirit so deeply, maybe in a, in a very profound way, that you see somebody that needs Jesus and that he just, man, he burns that into your spirit. I'm not, I'm not saying that negative way. I'm saying, I'm saying that's what Jesus saw everywhere he went. I want to see that more. I want to see that more. I want to see it more. And I pray that for you too. So I'm going to be praying for that. So maybe, maybe send me an email or a text or something that tells me. And if you see a little tiny dude in a tree, definitely text me about that. Take a picture. Send me the picture. All right, before noon tomorrow, God's going to give you an opportunity to let somebody know. He's going to give you an opportunity to let somebody know he loves you. Do the best you can. Tell somebody and he'll honor that in your life. Okay? Uh, don't forget to connect with the Ligans before you leave. And uh, one of our ushers, could you guys be waiting at the door? Because we, we want to collect money uh, for the Ligans. We will see you. Have a great rest of your afternoon.